this week on the Backtable Podcast. And like, I think some people don't understand the backdoor Roth or, or maybe they understand it, but finding a little bit intimidating, but actually having, even though I haven't done it, I, I recently reviewed your post on it and man, like you make it as absolutely simple and, and seemingly idiot proof. Although I may put that to the test, <laughs> um, but can you maybe just, I mean, I know that like a lot of people talk about the backdoor Roth, maybe you can just like briefly touch on it. And, and then we can also link to your post on it, like how to do it for those who are a little bit further along and want to execute it. Sure. Yeah. One thing I found is, you know, it's easy to understand these concepts sometimes, but not easy to actually implement like, okay, what does this actually look like when I log in and what totally. do I click on? How do I not screw this up? Hey guys, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things IR and endovascular. I'm Chris Beck and I'll be your host today. I'm absolutely pumped about today's episode. We have a really special guest, uh, Leif Baleen. Uh, he's better known as the Physician on Fire, POF. Leif is an anesthesiologist by trade, so a little different from our typical IR guest. Uh, he's here with me to discuss personal finance today. So a little different topic, but super, super important. And I'm really happy and excited to have this guy on the show. Leif, welcome. Thank you for the kind introduction, Chris. I'm happy to be here. And uh, yeah, sorry to break up the usual uh, routine of talking radiology, um, you know, interventional radiology specifically. All I know is how to push propofol for you guys, try to keep your people still as best I can and and wear the lead. So anyway, happy to be here and discuss something a little uh, uh, outside the ordinary uh, for you today. Awesome. Awesome. Like I said, super excited to have you on. Um, I guess like an easy way to get started, you know, for the uninitiated, um, how about just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and tell us about the name Physician on Fire. Sure. Uh, as you said, I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm in my 13th year, uh, out of residency and my final year out of residency, I believe that I will be done working in August and, uh, and it's not so much cause I, I don't like the work. It's just that I like my days off better and a few years ago, I realized after stumbling across uh, some of the same uh, blogs that I believe you've now found uh, that talk about early retirement and financial independence, I, I realized that I had earned enough and saved enough to make work optional. And uh, so I'm going to be opting out. And I started a blog kind of sharing this information because it was really revolutionary to me. And I've got like, there were some really important uh, things that people can understand where money can, can really work for you. And, uh, it's not so much uh, about retiring early necessarily, although that is one option once you have that amount of money, but it also does wonderful things for your career. It, uh, it can help you with burnout. It can, uh, just give you more options and more leverage when it comes to negotiating. Uh, you know, we can dive deeper into all these topics, but, uh, yeah, financial independence is a wonderful thing. I highly encourage people strive for it. And, uh, I'm just, yeah, pretty excited about it. And that's why I have this website physician on fire to talk about it. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, you're right. Like we have about a hundred topics. So the podcast can go on, uh, forever. Uh, it won't. Um, so, so tell us, um, like, uh, about the name, like physician on fire, like for, for those who, who may not know, like what, what is, what does fire mean? What, what's that all about? Right, right. So yeah, there's kind of a double entendre there. Um, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm mainly going with the, the uh, second meaning of, uh, the acronym fire, which is financial independence, retire early. Um, as I said, I do place a bit of an emphasis on the first part, 
And uh, yeah, so the site is basically a, a personal finance blog. And I talk about all kinds of topics related to um, saving money, earning money, how to invest simply and effectively, you know, saving money on taxes where you can, uh, being generous with your money. And uh, yeah, uh, again, you can go on and on, but uh, yeah, 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 I got you. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So, so financial, so financial independence, like the first part of fire, obviously huge topic, huge topic. Um, I guess getting into it, um, let's talk about, um, like maybe the savings part of, of like financial independence, like, uh, what, what were some of the things like you did or initiated in your life to, to like first get into your savings rate or, or increase your savings? Um, you know, talk a little bit about that, like, not just like what you were doing, but also like, you know, what, what numbers were you, were you looking for? Were you. Were you just like saving for the sake of saving or do you have a target in mind? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and the target is something I wanted to kind of talk about because we really need to define what financial independence is before we can talk about how to get there. And yeah, what it means essentially is that uh, you have either enough money or, or uh, is, you know, your nest egg or enough cash flow uh, to the point where earning additional income is uh, not necessary to live the life that you're living, that you're comfortable with. And so that can be, uh, you know, it's basically a mathematical equation. If you have 25 to 30 times the amount of money that you anticipate spending or that you're normally spending in a year saved up and at least some of that accessible to you, uh, because you know, if it's all locked away in, in retirement accounts, that makes it a little more complicated to spend it, right? There are different ways to access, um, you know, your money, even if it is in an IRA or 401k, but, uh, yeah, so like 25 to 30 times, and that's based on the 4% rule, which means you start, uh, your retirement or, or yeah. if you're not retired, then you have other cash flow, obviously, but if you're not making any income, you can spend about 4% of your nest egg each year, and then adjust upwards for inflation each year, uh, with a very, very, very low likelihood of, uh, ever running out of money. And actually you're more likely to uh, watch your portfolio grow if you're spending at a level of uh, 4% of that initial nest egg or less. Okay. So, so the financial, so the number for financial independence is really based on this, this 4% rule. And, and if I understand you correctly, if, if I'm repeating it correctly, that's basically 25 times like your annual expenses. So if you know your annual expenses, say it's like a hundred thousand bucks per year, then if you multiply that by 25 and you hit that number, then that's essentially the amount that you can retire off of safely and not have to worry uh, about running out of money. Is, is that right? That's correct. And if, you know, those, that initial study uh, from the mid nineties looked at uh, a 30 year time frame. And so if you want to be, you know, conservative and you might expect a longer than 30 year retirement as I do, I'll be 43, uh, when I retire this summer, you want to, uh, maybe go with a, maybe a three and a half, three and a third, even 3% withdrawal rate. And then you're much more likely to see that portfolio grow. And, you know, then, then you can start thinking about, uh, estate tax issues and, and how much money to donate and where you want it to go. But, uh, that, that's the, yeah, that's the crux of it. And another way to look at financial independence, because some people prefer to invest in real estate or, you know, dividend paying stocks and REITs and that sort of thing. 
uh, is just having the monthly cash flow there with, uh, you know, minimal effort. Uh, you know, passive income can be semi-passive or, or a lot of work, <laughs> you know, sometimes for people, sure, if, you're, sure. if you're a landlord, et cetera. Um, so yeah, if you look at it from a cash flow standpoint, if you spend eight to 10,000 a month, if you have that much or more coming in reliably, then you could also consider yourself to be financially independent. Okay. And, and one of the things that at least I've found in, in kind of researching this topic is that um, I think a lot of people when they're saving, they're just kind of saving, like they, they don't have anything in mind. They may have, you know, some inherent, uh, you know, some people are inherently frugal and, and so they try and save as much as possible. But what's, what's kind of interesting about like financial independence is like, it's like, if you know your expenses or, or you can anticipate, you know, roughly your ex annual expenses, then like, there's a concrete number, right? There's a goal, like you can put up on the board and say, this is what I'm working towards. Right. Yeah. Yep. Like you said, you, you take that, uh, annual expenses, but you know, like you said, you use a hundred thousand a year, multiply that by 25 or 30 and that, that's the 2.5 or $3 million. That's your target. And I, I think, you know, we're all pretty goal oriented people. We've, we've achieved many of our goals to be where we are. And, uh, so having that, uh, target can be pretty powerful. Now for me, I was kind of like the guy you were just describing that didn't really know what he was saving for, but I spent what we wanted to spend and you know, started a family and all that and built a house, but I just saved and invested, uh, what we didn't spend. And most years that ended up being, you know, at least half of what we took home. And so now I, I, I kind of challenge people if they do find this concept of financial independence to be something they want. I, I challenge them to try to live on about half of their take-home pay. Uh, if you can invest a dollar for every uh, dollar you spend, you know, you'll have financial independence in about 15 years, give or take, depending on market returns. I think that math uses about a, a six or 7% uh, return on investment over 15 or so years that it would take to go from zero, you know, flat broke to having enough money to cover all your expenses. Um, and it's interesting because it, it doesn't really matter how much you make. It's really just what percent you save versus percent that you spend. Yeah. Yeah. It, it turns out it's, it's actually ends up being just kind of a math equation, like, mm -hmm. like you said. Um, so, so digging in a little bit to that, to that savings rate. So, so you challenge people or what you were kind of doing just, just kind of naturally was you were saving about 50% of, of your take-home pay. I, I think that's, I think that would come as a sh shock to, to many people. Um, or, or they might be feeling a little shell shocked. I mean, I think some of the advice that I got in residency when I was saving and, and I certainly got no advice uh, when I got out of, uh, out of trading, but you know, people were saying, yeah, oh, Hey, if you save five, 10, 20% of your take home pay, then, then you're doing great. You're crushing it. But, but at least what, what I've learned and in, in kind of getting into this, this, uh, you know, financial independence is like, you know, there are people out there who are doing 40. 50, 60, 70%. And, and, and that's really like a, that's really like, you know, uh, moves you so much closer, so much faster to your goal of hitting this financial dependence. Right. Right. Yeah. You said it well, you know, it's, uh, it, for most people, it's not natural to save a lot of the money that comes in because I don't, I think, you know, we have this delayed gratification and for so many years we're kind of poor, you know, going through medical school and residency and didn't even have time to spend money or money to spend and a lot of student loan debt for many of us. So yeah, it's, um, once you get that big paycheck, it's like, wow, look at all the things I can do. And I did a lot of charity. Sure. Sure. I have a lot. We, we overbuilt a big house on the lake uh, and we made those mistakes too. But, uh, 
you know, when you really stop and, and think about what makes you happy and, and what's one of the best times in your life where spending a ton of money doesn't really equate with long-term, you know, happiness and joy. So sure. that's something that, uh, to me, I guess, luckily came kind of naturally. I was not trying to become financially independent. I had no particular designs on retiring in my forties. I thought, yeah, maybe when the kids have graduated high school, we have an empty nest, you know, maybe transition do some logos and kind of wind down in my fifties. But, uh, it wasn't until I realized that, gosh, I didn't need like $10 million to live the life I'm living. You know, a, a few million would be plenty. And that's, that's kind of where we're at now. So, um, and I, my example isn't the greatest one because now I do have this website and yeah, sure, sure. you're retired, but you still have like this, this kind of pat, this, I uh, will like sort of call it path of that project or yeah, yeah. It's fun thing that I do. But, uh, you know, I, I've learned from, uh, my mentor in the space, the white coat investor, you know, how to actually earn some income from, you know, having fun and sharing this information online in different ways. So yeah, I'll be, uh, maybe we can call it semi-retired, but. I'll be location independent, which is really exciting for us because I, I love to travel and we'd love to shore boys the world. And I envision instead of going for you know a week or two at a time to you know, some place in Europe or Australia or Southeast Asia, we can go for months at a time. And that's sure, low travel, man. What I do from anywhere. Yeah. And we're, we're geared up to be doing that kind of homeschool or road school from wherever we are in the world. So that's kind of what the next few years are going to look like for us. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so let me, let me ask you this. So, you know, uh, some of our audience members, you know, we, we kind of have a, a wide spectrum from people who are medical school and trainees and residency or fellowship to, you know, the, the seasoned practitioner. But if, if you could go back and give some advice as the, you know, some, some simple, straightforward things you can do for people who are young in their career, either just starting out or and maybe they're still in residency, still in fellowship about things that, you know, just a couple of tips about, you know, things you can do to, to help with your savings rate and maybe beat down this thing, um, that maybe they haven't heard about, maybe they have, you know, something called lifestyle creep. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was just yesterday, um, at least from when we're recording this, uh, I saw someone post in the physician side gigs, Facebook group. Um, you know, if buying a helicopter, uh, would be a you know reasonable thing to do. And I think he is a radiologist, you know, and he's still in training. He's like, when, it's, when I get out of residency, uh, we, you know, what do you think about me getting a helicopter? It was like, maybe, maybe, maybe ask that question 10 years after residency, when you have a seven figure net worth and maybe that wouldn't set you back so much, but when you're broke or worse, that's, you know, don't have those helicopter dreams. Um, sure. The helicopter expense, a big line. Yeah. Yeah. Big line item. Um, yeah. And the, speaking of student loan debt, I think, you know, if you get in the habit of seeing that big paycheck and, and rather than thinking about what you can buy with it, you know, start working on, on freedom from debt. So yeah. most of you know, your list of are going to be making several hundred thousand a year or more. Uh, and that gives you enough left over after even, you know, living in a decent place, fairly nice place, you know, having a reliable car, all that, you know, living, uh, let's say, a, you know, $100,000 a year lifestyle, you're going to have six figures left over even after paying taxes, work on your student loan debt. And then you get used to, you know, having X amount of dollars to spend and all this other money going to the debt. Once the debt's paid off, which could and should happen within a few years, start putting that same money into investment accounts and, to, you know, make your money work for you. You know, I, most years, 
now, you know, my investments make as much or more than I do working, especially since I dropped part time a couple, uh, well, about a year and a half ago and don't make as much money as I used to. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's really uh, freeing to, and, and kind of fascinating to see that, you know, many days and some years, my investment accounts, you know, work harder than I do. They make more money than I do. Yeah. They never stop working, right? No, no. The day and night. It, that's the joy. That's the joy of compound interest. Um, mm-hmm. all right, so let's get a little bit into into talking about uh, investing. So, like you said, I think a lot of our listeners, maybe not the guys who are in training, guys, don't worry, it'll end. You'll you'll get a job soon. But I, I think a lot of people are. I think you can expect that you know most people in the IR or radiology world, like you're saying, like a, a lot of people can expect six figure salaries, and these are, these are high income earners mm-hmm. um, for for the most part. Um, and so at least one of the problems that I ran into is, you know, after like I went from living like a resident, living like a fellow, and then all of a sudden I just started getting these paychecks and I, I literally had no idea what to do with them. They just sat in my bank account because I was, I was paralyzed with like paralysis analysis in that like I didn't know what to do with it. And so I didn't do anything with it, which isn't the worst thing in the world. I didn't make any mistakes, but, you know, I right. wasn't able to take any action. And so, you know, what? Like, how would you prioritize like some different things? Like, you know, all of a sudden you're sitting with this, this mounting uh, pile of cash and, and it's starting to accumulate in your bank account. Like, what do you do with it? Like, what are, what are some smart things to do? And, and we don't have to get too much in the weeds, but you know, how would you prioritize some of these different liver, uh, levers to pull as far as like putting your money to work for you? Right. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, that paralysis part is, is common and yeah. I had read a book called The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need, which it wasn't exactly that, but it, it, uh, it's when I think I read in medical school and it, it helped me avoid making you know, a lot of the dumb mistakes. You know, I haven't uh, you know, bought into whole life insurance and I haven't, uh, yeah, I didn't squander my money. I, I just realized that, oh, I should probably buy some mutual funds with it. And I didn't buy the best ones, but I, I bought some and they, you know, they made me some money um, in more you know, recent Times once I actually got into you know a six figure and, and approaching seven figure net worth, I looked uh, a lot more closely at what I was investing in and and what's the you know maybe the optimal way to do that. Discovered sure. that index funds, you know, simple. You can buy as few as two or three funds and own all the U.S. stocks publicly available. You know, you, you can buy an international fund that owns basically every international stock available and you can buy a bond fund that has all the U.S. bond funds available. Uh, and that gives you incredible diversification. Fees are incredibly low. It's easy to understand what you have and really easy to implement on your own. So I, I do uh, talk about the three fund portfolio, which again, is just a total stock market fund that's U.S. based total international fund and bond fund. Now I do play around with some, some additional stuff, but it's really not not necessary. It doesn't make a huge difference in the returns that I get. And so I, I like to keep it simple. I like to keep fees really low and I recommend reading a few books. Like the one I mentioned is go at the white coat investor is a website, but also a book that is very concise and you can read it in a couple, three hours in one evening and you'll know just so much more about, uh, what to do with your money than, than you did before. Uh, I've written a couple of blog posts, uh, just called investing basics for physicians with little time or interest or something like that. Uh, like to kind of like give you a really quick overview and like, here's what you kind of need to know about the different accounts that are available to you. You know, you can make tax deferred, 
uh, investments a lot of times through work, through a 401k, maybe 457b. Some people have cash balance plans. Uh, you know, just get a little bit of education. Read a website or two, read a book or two, and don't be afraid of investing your money because if you don't, you're going to actually, you know, lose uh, to inflation. Yeah, money that's getting making zero or one percent is not keeping up with inflation at two or three percent. That's right. So, so I mean, there's there's a lot there that you said that that's that's worth unpacking. And and one some some great books that you recommended that you know we'll link we'll try and link to in the show notes. Um, one of the funny things that I found about I also read um, the only investment guide you'll ever need. Um, was that it, I think it's been revised twice. And so I think there's some irony there that, you know, <laughs> the, guy wrote the book is revised it, but at least he owns up to it. And, and I, I found that very hilarious. Um, but so there's some resources available. There's some fantastic blogs available, including your own, which, which I actually found and, and put me onto a lot of these topics. And so we'll, we'll make sure we link to that. Um, but like investing doesn't have to be like this super complicated, like difficult thing where you need someone to help manage your money, right? Like you, you reference the three fund portfolio. And so, and so investing can be as easy as, as starting up, you know, whatever retirement account that you maybe have access to, and then just investing in two or three funds, right? I mean, is that right. a reasonable approach? Like reasonably people are doing this thing? You know, you need to learn the lingo, you know, um, you know, what does it mean to be, you know, tax deferred or tax advantaged, you know, what is your 401k? What are the rules there? When can you get that money? How is a 457 be different? You know, these things, they come in time. It's, it's not a big deal. If you got through, you know, one semester of medical school, you had to memorize a whole lot more information than you need to know to invest soundly and simply. So this is all stuff that's, that's not terribly complicated. Uh, it just takes uh, an effort, you know, and a lot of people need that uh, certain impetus to have a reason to want to know about their money. Most people and just kind of, yeah, so I got somebody taking care of that or I'll figure that out when I find time and you don't choose to find time. So uh, you have to have some kind of reason, I think, to, to want uh, to understand your money. But once you, you know, have that, uh, that push, it's, it's really not terribly complicated. It doesn't have to be anyway. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't mean to, to put you on the spot. Um, I know w when I first came out, one of the things that I did is I was like, you know what? I, I've heard that doctors are notoriously bad at managing money. I need someone to help me manage my money to, to prevent me from making mistakes. And so I got a financial advisor. Um, having dived into the topic a little bit, I, I've, I've since kind of moved away from a financial advisor and, mm -hmm. and now I'm kind of going it alone. Um, what's, what's your take on the financial advisor community and, and necessity of, or, or maybe going it alone? Right. You know, there's, there's definitely a role there for financial advisors. I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I've heard that, the, I don't know, maybe 80, 85% of advisors are not fiduciary. They don't necessarily have your best interests in mind. They may be you know, earning money by putting you in funds that are not optimal for you, but gets them a kickback, you know? So there, you got to be really careful and cautious when you choose one. Um, I do have a list of recommended financial advisors that are uh, all one fiduciary, which means they legally are obligated to at least put you in suitable investments. Uh, optimals, maybe, you know, not, it's, it's not a super strong term, but fiduciary is an important term. Uh, 
fee only, which means they're not earning commissions from anything they sell you, no kickbacks, et cetera. And, uh, you know, a lot of them have either an hourly rate or a flat fee. So it doesn't matter how much money you have invested. Uh, a lot of even a fiduciary fee only advisor, a lot of them charge an assets under management fee, an AUM fee, and one to one and a half percent, even 2% is, is common. So if you have a million dollars, that's $10,000 a year on 1%. $15,000 a year on 1.5%. And you, you don't want to be paying that once you become a multimillionaire, which you will if you're in this career and saving, you know, like I said, a decent chunk of your paycheck. So I think it's not a bad idea to start with an advisor. Might be a good idea to go with a flat fee or maybe just kind of a one-time plan to get started and then take that time before, you know, the next year's fees or the, you know, next time you plan to meet with this advisor to uh, learn enough to try to do it yourself. And ultimately that's going to be by far the cheapest option. And it's true that a financial advisor can keep you from making dumb mistakes. And if you're prone to do that, and if you're very emotional, you know, very emotional about money, then it's probably a good idea to stick with an advisor. But, uh, most of us, you know, are pretty level-headed. Again, we, we got through medical school and residency and then we, we know how to make rational decisions. Uh, so they, I think, uh, you know, if you trust yourself with money, you know, it's a good idea to learn to DIY. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's, that's great. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of use, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit, um, about my portfolio and I'm not giving away too many secrets. Um, um, certainly no, no insider information here. Yeah. Um, I, I read Jim Collins, uh, the simple path to wealth yeah. and, and I'm, I'm just interested to, to get your take on it. So basically what I did was I, I took all like these, these mutual funds that I was, I was in, I, and I basically was trying to move towards, you know, low index mutual funds. And I put all my money into VT SAX, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, I, it's, it's, it's oversimplified, but simplification was kind of something I was striving for. And, you know, I, with the, with the understanding that, you know, the, these things aren't set in stone, like you can move money around and, and it's, it's not like you're going to lose half your investments, you know, moving a little money from, you know, VTSAX, which is a, a total, uh, or Vanguard's total, um, uh, stock index, uh, fund, um, into a couple other funds, um, so what's your, you know, it, is it reasonable to have something like as, as simple as a, a one portfolio investment strategy or, or, you know, like you said, I mean, you have that three fund portfolio, right? Right. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's totally reasonable. You know, the year you're not going to be using any of that money to live on and actually spending that money for, uh, I don't know, a decade or two or more, you know, if you're planning on a traditional career, you might not touch it for a very long time. Uh, you know, there are some people that believe you should always have some bonds in your portfolio, but, uh, yeah, just, it kind of, as Jim likes to say, uh, it smooths the ride, right? Bonds smooth the ride, right? Maybe a transition to some more bonds. I have 10% bonds in my portfolio. I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to have one fund. That fund, like I said, has every publicly sold U.S. stock in it. It's over 3000 stocks that you own by owning one, you know, simple fund isn't necessarily all that simple when you, you dive into it. Uh, right. It's easy for you. It's simple to implement and it's simple to own. And, and when you make trades in your tax advantage accounts, like the 401k, 457B, et cetera, uh, then there are no tax consequences to selling and trading and, and 
is consolidating like you did into the one fund. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful when you have uh, a brokerage account, like a you know, non-qualified, they call it a tax sure, account, sure. Right, right? Because when you sell there, if your investments have gains, you can owe capital gains taxes. So I, you know, I, I was in a situation kind of like you about yeah, maybe six or seven years ago now, where I realized I had a bunch of these actively managed mutual funds that I kind of picked out of a hat, you know, just really didn't have a whole lot of rhyme or reason to what I own. Sure, sure. I had a bunch of T row price bonds and, and the average expense ratio was maybe a half percent, but Vanguard's funds were under 0.1% at the time. And now you can get uh, no fee funds from Fidelity. So I decided to do what you did, consolidate, keep it simple, break it down, uh, sell everything. But I had a taxable account, right? A brokerage account. Mm -hmm. and it took me a while to kind of figure out the best way to unwind that. But when I looked at the capital gains that those mutual funds were spinning off and the taxes I owed on them, I realized it made sense just to, you know, kind of cut loose, just sell them, pay taxes on the gains. I also decided about that time with some, and I took the funds that had the highest gains and actually donated them to a donor advised fund, which is a, it's kind of like your own little foundation that you can give sure. from over the years. And by doing that, I didn't have to pay the capital gains. And I got a tax deduction for the full value of the funds that I donated. And that, that was a really neat move. And that's something that I've been working on building up is, is more of a donor advised fund, because as I said, I realized that we've got enough money now to, you know, live the lives that we want to live uh, and live pretty well for you know, the rest of our lives. So I'm trying to build up money to donate and improve other people's lives. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic uh, problem to have it's so much money that now you're looking for you know, tax advantage moves for your, for the money that you're going to donate to charity. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I have that as charitable mission on my website too. I donate half of my profits. I, I like to have some skin in the game. I think I work a little harder and, and, and probably make uh, more money for, for myself and charity by uh, keeping half the profits. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm pretty happy and, and proud of that fact. So, so we can, we can move on a, a little bit because uh, we got a lot of good topics um, from investing, but, um, it, th this may be a, a loaded topic or, or maybe you don't have a preference, but do you, uh, and, and I, I know that we can refer people to your website because your, your portfolio is, is there, right? Anyone can yeah. look at it. You're very right. Yep. Yep. Um, is there, are there any, um, uh, companies that you, you prefer that you invest in like Fidelity, Vanguard, whatever. I've been mostly with Vanguard. Um, they have, well, they're basically the first real low cost, uh, provider. Now Schwab and Fidelity also sure. have very low cost funds, but I, I look at them more as loss leaders for them to get you into their fund family. Um, and their other funds aren't necessarily, uh, so cheap, but it, they're all, they're getting better. You know, competition has been really good for the space. So, but yeah, most of what I own is in Vanguard and I have. Uh, some Schwab funds in my solo 401k, but that's about it. I do have one individual stock that's Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, to be honest, the main reason I bought it is because I want to go to the uh, annual meeting at, uh, of the shareholders while Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett are still with us. And I haven't made it yet. And I think I'm going to be in Honduras this year when it happens. So, uh, oh, well, but, um, eventually I would like to go to the, the, uh, meeting, but I do like that stock. Obviously it's done incredibly well. And it pays no dividend. And that's a good thing. A lot of investors, you know, they, they love to get their dividends, but I just look at dividends as uh, particularly when you're making money, when you're in your high earning years, dividends are just kind of like forcing 
you know, money and the tax sure. implications sure. associated with them on you. And I, I'd rather have a no dividend fund. Uh, and it, Berkshire Hathaway happens to be one of those stocks that pays no dividend. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Um, so one of the things, uh, that I wanted to talk about, and it's still kind of in the investing category. Um, and, and the only reason is it's because is I found it extremely helpful myself is, and we don't have to spend too much time on it, but um, what, do you have a, a health savings account? Yes, I do. And, and, and yeah, we right. talk a little bit about that. Like as far as like, I think a lot of people are familiar with health savings accounts, but maybe not familiar with it in terms of having an HSA as a retirement vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. or an investment vehicle. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's quote unquote, triple tax free. You get a tax deduction when the money goes in, it grows, uh, you know, without tax on the returns. And if you take it out to pay for medical expenses, you pay no tax. So it kind of li- works like a, like a tax deferred investment on the front end and more like a Roth on the back end. So that's pretty awesome. There really aren't any other accounts like that. Um, what some people do is, is just let that grow. Don't use the money to pay for medical expenses on the fly. Uh, I found that for myself, uh, you know, if you do that, you have to keep track of your receipts and sure. you, have to, you know, either trust the cloud and, and scan or take pictures of every receipt. It's getting easier. But, uh, a few years ago I started out that way. I was just going to let my age say grow and grow and grow. And then I, you know, like, I don't want to keep using the scanner and saving it and putting on a spreadsheet. So I decided to just start using my HSA when I incurred the expenses. Um, but yes, you can, like I said, keep track of all your receipts. And then someday, 20, 30 years from now, you know, just say, I want $32,000 for all the medical expenses I've had over the last 10 years, 20 years, whatever, and take that money out. Wait, you know. um, if you don't use it for medical expenses, you can right. just use it for whatever you want after age 65, but you do pay uh, tax on those withdrawals if they're not used for anything medical. And I have a feeling most of us are going to have enough medical expenses uh, later, sure, later on down the road. You'll be able to use it for medical expenses and you can't use it to pay for health insurance premiums after retiring. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use it to pay uh, Medicare premiums later on though. So there's that. Okay. Awesome. And, and one of the things, I mean, the reason I was kind of excited about it is I just recently researched a lot of topic regarding the HSA. I got really excited about it as, as kind of an investment vehicle with the, like you said, the triple tax advantage. Um, also it opened up, a, you know, some, some places that you open up with will charge you fees associated with their HSA, which kind of chips away at your, your, uh, contributions. Fidelity actually has like a zero cost, um, HSA account that you're able to get into. And then Fidelity also opened up like a zero cost uh, index fund. Right. And so, um, you know, I thought, man, if, if anything is keeping expenses low, it's this uh, Fidelity HSA and then putting it into like a, you know, no cost uh, index, you know, total. Yeah, that's as good as it gets, right? Yeah. So um, so anyway, if anyone's interested in that, I mean, there's tons of stuff about the HSA account and, and we can link to a couple um, um, fan favorites. Um all right, so let's see. Um, one of the other things that I think that you and the White Code Investor have done phenomenally, um, and you just actually tweeted about it recently, um, is the backdoor Roth. And like, I think some people don't understand the backdoor Roth, or or maybe they understand it, but finding it a little bit intimidating. But actually, having even though I haven't done it, 
I, I recently reviewed your post on it and man, like you make it as absolutely simple and, and seemingly idiot proof. Although I may put that to the test. <laughs> um, but can you maybe just, I mean, I know that like a lot of people talk about the backdoor Roth, maybe you can just like briefly touch on it. And, and then we can also link to your post on it, like how to do it for those who are a little bit further along and want to execute it. Sure. Yeah. One thing I found is, you know, it's easy to understand these concepts sometimes, but not it's easy to actually implement like, okay, what does this actually look like when I log in and what totally. do I click on? How do I not screw this up? So, um, I had been doing this backdoor Roth since I think 2013 and a couple of years ago, I took screenshots of every step along the way when I was logged in at Vanguard and, uh, took time to edit out my account numbers and that sort of thing. But otherwise it's all there. Uh, so the concept uh, for the backdoor Roth is that we you know, physicians tend to earn too much money to contribute directly to a Roth IRA, but there is no income limit uh, as to uh, define who can uh, make a Roth conversion. So the backdoor Roth is a two-step process. First, you make a non-deductible IRA contribution, and then afterwards, you can do it the next day. Uh, you make that uh, Roth conversion, and there's no tax implications of that because you're not taking a tax deduction for the uh, contribution that you just made. So it's just a two-step uh, contribution, then conversion, and that allows you to get $6,000 into a Roth IRA annually if you're married. Whether or not your spouse earns income, uh, the spouse can also have a $6,000 backdoor Roth each year. Uh, so we've been doing that for about uh, seven years now. Yeah, all that. I mean, that's the thing. All that kind of stuff adds up. And also, even though we didn't mention it, the ASA, the HSA, the health savings account, recently went up to thirty five hundred. So you know, all these, all these little things like uh, getting your money into that's how to individual double that for a family. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All these things about getting your money into these tax advantaged accounts, like it's all these like percentage points add up. Um, so um, another another topic is is how to like maybe give some some resources you allude to a couple uh and link to a couple on your website about things that you use to track your money track your um expenditures i know that you have a spreadsheet that you can download from the website um but do you have any like money money tracking uh apps or websites that you use that you found helpful like kind of in this process of staying organized and, and keeping all your ducks in a row I do. Yeah. You know, I never tracked spending until after I became, well, I think I started just before I started blogging, but I figured if I was going to tell the world I was, you know, financially independent, I better prove it uh, to myself and be able to prove it to my readers. You know, I had, you know, credit card receipts and I kind of knew every month was you know, five, 6,000, you know, something like that. Um, but I started using mitt.com, which is great uh, for looking at your daily spending. You connect your credit card accounts, your checking account. And you can uh, see where everything goes and you can categorize it. They'll do most of it automatically. And you just have to kind of look it over, make sure all looks right. And then you can see down to the penny where you're spending, you know, as long as you enter your cash spending as, as a separate line item. And of course, you're going to have to do that manually. But mint.com is, is great for that. Personal capital is one that I still use. It also does expense tracking, not quite as well, but it does a better job with investment tracking, uh, not only tracking, but breaking it down into, you know, detailed asset allocation. There's a retirement planner that kind of shows where your trajectory is and you can enter different life events and like taking social security or a pension or sure. you know, the date you retire 
or a big raise or a bonus. You can enter all that stuff in there and, and they'll give you a nice graphical uh, look at what the future uh, might look like for you and your net worth. And then of course it, it tracks what each of your account balances is and the balance of each fund or asset they own within each fund. So yeah, it's very, very powerful uh, software and it's free. They do have an advisory service that they will try to sell you. Um, yeah, I don't recommend, but um, I still think it's great for the uh, for the free, very graphic visual. And I mean that in a, not a graphic, but you know, good okay. graphics. Yeah, I know. It's not like <laughs> graphic, uh, yeah, like a murder scene. Um, no, it's uh, it's good stuff. And then, yeah, I, like you said, I use my own spreadsheet too that I can uh, kind of manipulate and and play with a little bit. And I do that probably as much for uh display on the website as I, I do for my own purposes gotcha yeah so i actually so i, I totally agree like I, i've used mint for a while and and that's fantastic for you know budgeting or or tracking outflow and i just recently used personal capital um and actually i, I even signed up through uh your website so I you know that. That. yeah you're welcome you're welcome so i signed up for personal capital within the last month um, and, and that's been fantastic to track, you know, where you are with investments. They eat, they, you're, they do a lot of the same thing, but there's, so there's some overlap, but each kind of has a different bend. And then even after I did that, I found that like, I kind of needed a spreadsheet for a little more personalization, mm-hmm. um, just in, and you know, it's, it's me, like, it's probably the type A in me that, you know, I just want to really track everything down to the dollar as close as possible and have like a little more personalization, but there are like tons of spreadsheets out there that people have already kind of done the formulas for you and you just plug in the values. Um, yeah, but those, those tools are, are, you know, very helpful. It's important to do that. You learn so much, right? Like actually see, and even if you don't break down each category of spending, at least you see, okay, this month, um, 11,000. Okay. Where where did that go? Right. Like, yeah. And we don't have a mortgage. We've paid off our, our homes and and everything. So, uh, you know, if I see 11,000, that's pretty high for us. You know, five, six, seven. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and we had 30 some thousand the other month because we bought it, bought a vehicle, but that don't have. Yeah, but it, you're right. It, it encourages you, you know, just to, to get a little bit more real with your spending and, and see where you're at and, and, you know, be really kind of honest about, you know, where, God, Lee, where's this money going to sometimes? Um, yeah. and, you know, and you know, like you said, look for outliers. Knowing um, our net worth and then projecting where we are now and where we might be in five or 10 years if we, save this percent and we do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, that, um, I wanted to do and, and, you know, we can, we can kind of get into this and, and hopefully, you know, not take up all day on it, but, you know, let, let's talk a little bit, like just kind of like a case study of like an optimization strategy for like, you know, generic, you know, Dr. X who's making half a million dollars. And I hate to put you on the spot as like a, a W2 employee, like, you know, just talking kind of broad strokes, like this. So the guy's making, you know, half a million bucks. Let's just say this is, you know, after tax money, which, you know, of course would, would be awesome. But, you know, just to make the math simple, like, what would you do like with this money as far as like, where would you put it? You know, how much would, you know, in the, in this guy's got a mortgage too. So like, you know, how much would you put, like, where, where are these things going in terms of like, you know, retirement funds, um, mortgage, and then, you know, maybe, annuities, brokerage account, life insurance or something like just kind of rank those or, or if you think this is like impossible with me putting you on the spot. Oh, it's not possible at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
pretty straightforward. I might leave something yeah. out, but we'll start with the obvious stuff. He's a W2 employee, so he's going to have access to a 401k or 403b, and you can put 19000 a year into that. And that will be a tax deduction, which at his tax rate is going to save him, you know, depending on the state he lives in, uh, probably, you know, 37 to almost 50%, uh, you know, so if he puts in 19,000, he might save eight or 9,000 on his taxes. So you're going to want to do that for sure. Uh, many hospital employees also have a 457 B, which is similar in some ways to a 401k. It gives you the same tax deduction. Um, it's also different in that you can use that 457 B money and you can withdraw it easily without any complication once you leave your employer. So that's a great account for potential early retirees. Um, so there's another 19,000 if that's available to you. Next, uh, we mentioned the HSA, that's 3,500 or 7,000 if you're married. Mm -hmm. And that'll be again, another tax deferral. And beyond that, we talked about the backdoor Roth. You can do that. So now we're up to, uh, for a married couple, we had 38 plus seven is 45, another six. Now we're over $50,000. Uh, put away for retirement before even talking about any uh, non-tax advantaged options. Now in private practice, you may have, uh, you know, the cash balance plan and depending on your age, that, that could be a six figure uh, tax deferral right there. But let's say he doesn't have that option or she. Then for me, yeah, I'm looking at the mortgage, you know, it depends on the mortgage rate. It depends on whether or not you're going to get sure. put, uh, tax deduction, uh, based on your mortgage interest, if you're actually itemizing or not, you know, and now there's a limit on how much you can, uh, deduct for your state income taxes paid and property taxes paid. So math has changed a little bit there, but if mortgage pay down is a priority for you, absolutely do that student loan pay down probably should be a priority because those interest rates tend to be higher and we make too much money to get any benefit from the interest on those. So certainly put a chunk of money towards that. And as I'm sure, you know, if you've spent any time on my site or the white coat investor, I would, I would not recommend uh, a whole life uh, policy right. putting money into annuities or any other flavor. Um, but you can also and do some neat tricks within a taxable account, like tax loss harvesting, which I also have a you know, step-by-step guide for uh, Vanguard and Fidelity users on, on that fun little trick. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I would start shoveling in money once you've done the debt pay down that you want to do. Just buy your more of your VT sacks or a you know, similar fund in a, in a taxable account. Okay, so it, it would be reasonable, like, you know, just kind of talking in, in broad strokes. So you maximize those tax deferred accounts like priority one. Like that's, that's the first thing you do with your paycheck. Yeah. And then, and then after you've done that, then you look down to beating down student, you know, either consumer debt, student loans, you know, yeah. or if you our debt, obviously that's going to be number one. Hopefully if you're making, you know, 800,000 a year, if you've got 500 post tax, you probably don't have credit card debt, but if you do, <laughs> get on top of that. Yeah. Um, so beat down the debt and then with the leftovers, then, you know, just a, a regular brokerage account and, you know, just kind of start socking it away. And, and, you know, like you said, uh, letting that money grow for you, even though it's not a tax advantage account, it's still like, you know, it's, it's putting it in the market. Yeah. And, and you don't pay much tax, but taxable is a bad name for this. Just kind of one that people toss around, but uh, you pay very little tax on, on that. Like for me, uh, I, I have a dividends that come out 
at about 2%, you know, on that BT tax, it pays like, I don't know, 1.8 something percent each sure. year. And I pay long-term capital gains tax rates on, on that. And so it ends up being a you know, tax drag of about a half percent a year on the money in the taxable account. That's pretty, you know, it's pretty low. It's not zero on it. Yeah, it's reasonable. Okay, that's awesome. Um, let's see. So, I mean, we we covered a, a ton of stuff here. Is um, is there anything else that um, I didn't ask that you felt like you know a, a burning need to discuss? Like, like, wow, there, there's a big gap here. Chris didn't ask me about this one. No, no, I think we uh, did a good job. Um, I will mention. I guess I didn't talk about this. This really um, high earning doctor might think about donating some money to. And uh, again, the donor advised fund is a really good option to do that when you're in those high earning years, because you can give that money away over decades. You don't have to, uh, you know, actually give it to the charities right away, but you do get the tax deduction right away. So if he's got, you know, you know lots of money left over after meeting all of his uh, you know, desires and needs, then you know, consider you know, being a little bit generous with that money. Yeah, that would be great. Um, and if uh, any one of our our listeners here wants to um, see more of the site or or get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way, Leaf? Uh, the best way is just to type in your browser pofire.com. and uh, I'm sure you're gonna have links to it as well. I'm pretty active on Twitter, and I've got a Facebook group called Physicians on Fire. That's plural, and uh, that's for physicians only. And we we're about 10,500 strong there and lots of good conversations happening every day. So yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Just Google physician on fire, or like I said, type in pofire.com and it'll direct you right to my site. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, guys, I think that wraps up the uh, Backtable podcast for today. I know that we talked about a lot of things and actually we referenced a whole lot of things. And so um, what I'm going to try to do is put together uh, a list. I mean, we'll we'll have a transcript of the the full podcast that's available, but we're also trying to get uh, some links going in the show notes to try and tie in to all the things that either uh, myself or or uh, Position on Fire referenced. And so you guys uh, check out their show notes. Um, and if you need anything from us, you know where to find us um, at at Backtable. Uh, on Twitter. Um, all right, Leaf, again, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Cheers. Mm-hmm.